Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. for worship. Now please enjoy the message. And this is a sermon series called A Story to Tell, or, or kind of parenthetically, an investigation of the accounts of Jesus. And so we ended last week, we ended this sermon series onward last week talking about legacy principles. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the legacy I stand on. I lost an entire generation of my family this summer. And I've been thinking a lot about legacy. I've been thinking a lot about what gets handed down. And one of the things I'm really grateful for, and if this is you, raise your hand proudly. One of the things I'm really, really grateful for is I inherited from generations of my family a very high view of Scripture. I inherited from generations of my family a, a treasuring of the Word of God. Is anyone else there? And what a, what a beautiful legacy to inherit. What a beautiful thing to receive is this value, this beautiful picture of, of the Word of God. But one of the things I also know to be true is that the things we believe about Jesus, the things that you and I believe about Jesus, we don't believe them because the Bible tells us so. The things we believe about Jesus, we don't believe them because a book told us so. Now that's going to sound a little sacrilegious, and so I'm just asking for your patience. Stay with me for a few minutes. Stay with you. Those who are getting ready to turn the Facebook feed off, just stay with me for about five minutes. We don't believe what we believe about Jesus because it's written in the Bible. We believe what we believe about Jesus because individuals who were there in the moment, in the location, individuals who were there with Jesus, men and more, I mean, you want to talk about a ton of women, men and a bunch of women, where, where their lives were radically transformed because of what they experienced with Jesus, because of what they saw with their eyes and they heard with their ears, what they felt and what they experienced. I mean, this was ultimately incredibly intimate and very, very personal. This wasn't something that was held at the distance of something I read in a book one time. We believe what we believe about Jesus, not because we read it in the Bible. We believe what we believe about Jesus because the men and women who experienced those encounters with Jesus were so changed and were so transformed and their lives were so radically different that they wrote down everything they remembered him saying and everything they remembered him doing and they wrote it down and then other people who also had personal experience with Jesus in a personal account with the one who defeated the grave they also had that personal experience, and so they faithfully and carefully copied down those stories that had been written down by those first century eyewitnesses, and they copied it and copied it and copied it, and they took so much care in copying it so faithfully, and there are so many versions that we have, there are so many uh, examples that we have of those scriptures that sometime, almost four centuries later, 
people finally said, you know what, let's compile all of this into a sort of anthology that we will call the New Testament. You and I don't believe what we believe about Jesus because we read it in the Bible. You and I believe what we believe about Jesus because of the personal account of Matthew and John and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and and dozens of women who were outcast and who were not given the dignity and respect that they deserved in their time. And yet this Jesus came around and elevated these women and there were, there were men and women in the first century who had walked with Jesus, and they saw what he did, and they saw, his, they saw his miracles. It wasn't something they heard about. It wasn't something they read about. They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. They were right there in the moment. And what they saw and what they witnessed and what they experienced changed everything for them and what they saw and what they witnessed and what they experienced, their testimony, their story became so important to them that they knew that sharing that story may be the greatest legacy they would ever have. And so they wrote it down. Or they went to people who could write because you wouldn't believe how many of the followers of Jesus had no ability to read or write. And so they went to people and they said, you need to write this down. And that's how we ended up with the Bible. And so my goal in these next six weeks is not to take your faith away from Scripture. I want us to have a high view of Scripture. I want us to believe in the Word of God, but I don't want us to just look at it from the distance of words on a page. I want us to recognize that these are personal experiences. These are life changing testimonies of what Jesus did, of what they witnessed, of what they experienced. My goal in these next six weeks is that you and I would move beyond a faith that says simply the Bible says so. And we would move instead into a faith that says Matthew and John and Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, Paul, who was, who, who was the leading Pharisee of the time, his life was so radically transformed, he went from executing Christians to following Jesus. And these women, I want us to see that when we look at what we believe, we don't believe it because of words on a page, we believe it because of the life changing first-hand experiences that were copied down, that were written and recorded. And by the time we get to the fourth century, there were enough copies of these texts for the experts who ultimately compiled what we know as the New Testament to go back and check the authenticity and the veracity of these claims. They could go back and they could say, here's a first-century version of this text And here we are reading an early 4th century version of the text, and it has not changed one bit. So great was the desire to record these personal testimonies. So great was the responsibility they felt to tell a story well. That they gave more care and concern to writing down these words than anyone had ever given anything. That's why we believe what we believe about Jesus. And so what we're going to do over these six weeks is we're going to dive in 
to the investigation of these stories. Now, it would not shock you to know that when I was a kid, you know how some kids are like, I want to be a football player or I want to be a fireman? When I was in elementary school and middle school and for most of high school, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer. Now, I should also admit to you, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and so by the time I was in sixth grade, I was devouring John Grisham novels like crazy. So if you, if you remember those books like The Firm or Time to Kill or any of that, I mean, that, I, that I was, you know, and so I wanted that. You know, and I remembered, I remember reading uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, and, and I remember watching these movies, and so I think specifically about uh, Aaron Sorkin, who's a writer who I love. He wrote a play and then ultimately a movie called A Few Good Men. And, and, and I just fell in love with these courtroom dramas, these courtroom scenes. And that was, my, that was my vision. In my mind, lawyers were these people who would come up with a great argument and present it in front of a jury. And then I remember getting involved in speech and debate in middle school and high school and getting a chance to actually go and sit in a, a courtroom one day as part of our class field trip and then realizing that that's not actually what lawyers did. They said four or five words in front of a judge, and it was handed over here, and all mostly plea deals. So if, if you don't mind, we're going to take a step into the somewhat fictional, which is we're going to take a step into my mind of what a fictional courtroom looks like. We're going to argue, and we're going to imagine what it would be like if we're taking these stories and saying, you know what, we're going to put that person on the stand. We're going to put that person on the stand. If you want me to believe this claim about Jesus, then you've got to show me. You've got to prove it. You've got to demonstrate it. And so that's what we're going to do today. Because today I want you to know that Jesus has an invitation to you. Jesus, the Son of the living God, the one who died and was raised from the dead, Jesus has an invitation for you today. Those of you who are watching online, Jesus has an invitation for you today. And it's not because the Bible says so. It's because Matthew experienced it. Matthew didn't read words on a page. Matthew heard Jesus Christ say to him, follow me. So the invitation that you and I have received from Jesus is not a because the Bible says so invitation. We have received the invitation that was passed down to us. This is Matthew's story. This is Matthew's story. From Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, today we are going to walk together through Matthew's so let's begin at the beginning, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Now, of course, that's not the beginning of Matthew's gospel. If you're Matthew's gospel, one of, if you're Matthew, one of the things you need to know as you're writing your gospel account is Matthew, more than anything else, Matthew was a Jew. Now, he wasn't a good Jew, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But Matthew was a Jew. Matthew was someone who believed like most of the Jewish people did, in the law and the prophets that we know as the Old Testament. And Matthew believed that there was a Messiah who was going to come. But Matthew also believed 
that this Messiah, if this Messiah were to come, there's no way this Messiah could love him. If this Messiah were to come, there's no way that this Messiah could embrace him or welcome him. In fact, Matthew, Matthew lived in constant fear of the Messiah. Because Matthew was certain that his life choices, the things that he had done, Matthew was certain that his life made him an outcast. He was certain that his choices made him disqualified from the love of the Messiah. And here's why. As Jesus went on from Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. Now, if you don't know this, in the first century, what is today Israel was not an independent nation and had no freedom of its own. Israel was a place that was a, a, um, essentially a territory of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman legion was there. There were Roman guards all around. Capernaum was actually a city where the Roman legion, so about 10,000 Roman troops, were stationed there in the city of Capernaum. And so this is one of the things we have to understand. This is a Roman province during this period of time. And the Jewish people hated the Roman province. In fact, so much of their expectation around the coming Messiah was an expectation rooted in someone's got to come in and defeat these Romans and kick them out of Israel. Someone's got to come in and defeat these Romans and get them out of Jerusalem. Someone's got to come in and show these Romans what's up. And that's exactly what their expectation, most of the early first century expectation of the Messiah for the Jewish people was of a conquering king who would come in and kill the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was evil. But because Israel was now a territory, Judah or Judea was a territory, of Rome. Galilee was a territory of Rome. The Roman government imposed taxes. Now, if you were a Roman citizen who was involved in the collecting of taxes for the Roman government, you lived in Rome, and you lived in great wealth, and you were living it up. You weren't going to go live in what the Romans affectionately referred to as the armpit of the Roman Empire, which is how they saw what we know today as Israel. You weren't going to go live there. Instead, you were going to hire a local to collect taxes on your behalf, and you would hire them to do it, and essentially they were responsible for sending a certain amount of money back to Rome, and whatever else they got on top of it, they could keep. So you didn't really hire them so much as you gave Roman protection for them to collect taxes so they could make themselves rich while collecting taxes for you. That's what was happening in the first century. Now, the people who knew the community best in this time and in this place were other Jews. So imagine, if you will, late 1930s, early 1940s France. The Nazis have come, in, could come into France. They've very quickly taken over the country and occupied the country. Imagine being a French citizen living under Nazi-occupied France. And then imagine that you get hired by the Nazis to collect taxes for them from other French people. This is what it was like in the first century to be a Jew 
who was hired by the Roman Empire to collect taxes from other Jews. This meant that you were exiled from your community, you were considered unclean because of what you did, and you were prevented from worshiping God in the temple. Now, in the first century understanding of the Israelite people, if you were prevented from coming into the temple and worshiping God, what were you prevented from having? A relationship with God. Because if you couldn't be in the presence of God, you couldn't have a relationship with God. If your sin and uncleanliness exiled you and disqualified you from even stepping into the temple, how could you ever imagine that a God would love you or embrace you? So if you're a Matthew, if you're a tax collector in the first century, you're getting as rich as you can off the Roman Empire and off your fellow citizens. Because if the Messiah comes, you're in for real trouble. That's Matthew's expectation. But in Capernaum, in this region around Galilee, for the last 10 to 13 months, there's been a rabbi, there's been a teacher who's been traveling around, and people are amazed at his teaching. And some people say that he's performing miracles, and he's casting out demons, and he's letting the the lame walk and the blind to see. And people are starting to ask, hey, could this Jesus be the Messiah? Could this Jesus be the one we've been waiting for? And so the reputation and name of Jesus is spreading rapidly during this period of time. And what's, this, what's the whispering going on about him? Could this Jesus be the Son of God? So Matthew's sitting at the tax collector's booth in Capernaum. And Jesus shows up. Jesus, who very well could be the Messiah, who very well could be the Son of God. If you're Matthew, if you're Matthew, knowing what you know about yourself and knowing what you expect from the Messiah that's to come, can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the terror? Can you imagine that deep, gut, awkward, uncomfortable feeling that has suddenly hit Matthew? Yes, he has some Roman military guards around him, but the Roman military can't protect him from the Messiah if the Messiah shows up and sees what he is doing. I want us to remember this isn't a story we read on a page. This isn't words on a page. This is what happened to Matthew. This is what Matthew experienced. Matthew was sitting in that chair as people were coming by, paying his taxes. One for the Roman Empire, one for me. Two for the Roman Empire, one, two for me. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, if we were putting Matthew on the stand right now, what would we say? Matthew, you expect us to believe that? Matthew, are you telling me 
that you encountered the Messiah and the Messiah who knew who you were and knew what you were doing. He knew how filthy your behavior was. He knew how disqualified you were. He knew how wrong and sinful and corrupt you were. Matthew, you expect us to believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, showed up and said, follow me? Matthew, how could that possibly be the Messiah? Matthew, how could that possibly be the Son of God? Matthew, how could that possibly be the Christ? If he's asking someone like you to follow him. Matthew, you expect us to believe that this Jesus is the Messiah when he wants someone like you around? Because let's be honest. Let's be real with each other. For those of you watching online, let's just take a moment and be real in our hearts. This is not what we expect from God. You and I, this is what we expect from God. We expect God to show up to the tax booth and go, Matthew, you disgust me. Matthew, you know what you're doing is wrong. The stench of your sin is, is making its way all over the land. Matthew, there's not a person here who doesn't know how shameful you are. Matthew, I just want you out of my sight. That's what we expect from God. And that's what the Pharisees expected from God. That's what the scribes expected from God. That's what the people in leadership in the temple expected from God. They did not expect grace. They did not expect mercy. They expected, get out of my sight. You disgust me. And here's Matthew. And he's saying, I was a tax collector. And by the way, Matthew writes this gospel. He's not covering it up. He's not hiding it. He's going, I was hanging out in Capernaum and the place is not important. It's Matthew saying, I was at the tax office. This is Matthew's version of saying, I was dead in my sin. And Jesus showed up. And he says, come on, come on, come on. Can you imagine all that went through Matthew's head? He, he must not know. He must not understand. He, he must not see. He must not realize who I am and what I've done. He must not see all that's inside. He must not realize how broken and flawed and sinful I am. And the whole time Jesus is going, I do. Matthew, you're right there in the tax office. There's, there's no hiding it. This is the definition of being caught red-handed. Matthew, come on. Matthew, come on. Follow me. No, no, no. Leave, leave all that behind. Come on. Just follow me. Now that in and of itself, if we ended this story, if Matthew stopped the story right there, we would have enough to talk for weeks and months about the grace of God and how good God is to it and how unexpectedly God has poured out his forgiveness and his mercy upon us. But this is where it gets crazy. 
Matthew, you want us to believe that the Son of God saw you in the tax office and wanted to hang out with you? And Matthew's going, actually, <laughs> you'll never believe it. You know how he told me, follow me? Guess where he went? I followed him back to my house. He asked me to follow him back to where I lived. While Jesus was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew, there's no way. May it please the court, are we supposed to believe the lies of this guy who would dare say that God in Abad wants to hang out with him and his sinner friends at his house? We're never going to believe that. Because if we believe that, if we believe that God wants to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, then it means that God wants to hang out with me, too. It, mean, it means that God wants to come eat at my house. And it means that the people that I've looked down my nose at, the people that I've judged, the people that I've been self, so, so, so self-righteous with, those people, Jesus wants to hang out with them, too. He wants to eat at their house with their friends. And maybe that's the most unexpected thing in Matthew's story, is Matthew doesn't just say, the God of all creation invited me to follow him. He's saying, the God of all creation invited me to follow him back to my house with my sinful friends and all the brokenness that's there. God didn't just want me to follow him away from everything. God wanted me to follow him back in to the world and be light there. He wanted me to follow him back in to my sphere of influence and my group of friends and my co-workers and my classmates. He wanted me to follow him back to them and show them that the God of all creation wants to hang out with them too. Matthew, do you think we're stupid? Matthew, do you think we'll believe anything? Because Matthew, there's no way that's true. See, the problem is, is that if you're anything like me, if you grew up in church, if you grew up inheriting that legacy of that high view of Scripture, here's what's probably true for you and what is definitely true for me. My biggest struggle is believing this for myself and then not believing it for other people. My biggest struggle is that I believe Jesus wants to come hang out with me. Of course Jesus wants me to follow him. Of course Jesus wants to come over to my house and eat. And then I look down my nose at the person across the street and go, but he doesn't want to be around them. I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one who struggles to not just truly believe the grace of Jesus, but to then to turn and live it out. Because I think somewhere deep down inside, we're all a little bit like the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were seeing the whole thing. 
the Pharisees, the same group of people who were starting to wonder, could it be? Could this Jesus really be the Son of God? Could this Jesus really be the Messiah we've all been waiting for? And then they're going, there's no way. It can't be him. It can't possibly be him. Look who he's hanging out with. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Hey, hey, disciples, y'all are crazy. You are following a guy who you think is the Messiah, but look who he's spending this time with. Look who he wants to hang out with. Look who he wants to eat with. Look at whose home he's entering. And by the way, remember this. For the, for, for the Pharisees, Jesus going into the home of a tax collector and sinner made Jesus what? Unclean. In the mind of the Pharisees, Jesus was now guilty because of who he was associating with. Now think about this. Think about the providence of this point of view. The Pharisees believed Jesus had taken the guilt of the sinners and tax collectors on himself by associating with them. Are we catching the depth of this? The Pharisees are looking at Jesus and they don't get it because in their mind, the Messiah is supposed to be above and separate and distant. And Jesus steps in and he says, yeah, I'm going to hang out with the sinners and the tax collectors. And you may look at me and say, that makes me unclean. You may look at me and say, by associating with them, I'm taking their guilt. And meanwhile, the whole time Jesus is going, you don't even know the half of it. You think that's all the guilt I'm taking on? You think that's all the guilt I'm carrying? Jesus is going, no, no, no. I didn't just step down into Capernaum. I didn't just step down into Matthew's story. I didn't just encounter this one tax collector and come and hang out with his friends. I stepped out of the perfection of heaven onto this earth and took the sin of the globe on my shoulders. Jesus didn't become unclean by walking in to the home of a tax collector. Jesus, from the moment he was born on this earth, was taking upon his shoulders the guilt he did not earn and did not deserve. And when he was born in human flesh, he took all of our guilt. Because he didn't just walk into the home of a tax collector. He walked into this world. He walked right down into the middle of our mess. And so, of course, Jesus, who doesn't miss anything, Jesus hears the grumbling of the Pharisees. Now, does any, everyone know what a grumble sounds like? Can I just hear, can you, can you give me a quick example of a grumble? Okay, let's, let's do that really loud on the count of three. I want to hear a really loud grumbling. We're going to do our best Pharisee impression, okay? One, two, three. Yeah, it's hard for Jesus to miss that. 
And so he hears the grumbling of the Pharisees. Now, when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus could have stopped right there and the Pharisees would have got the message. But Jesus does something further. Because the Pharisees, the reason they felt so good, the reason they felt so high and mighty, the reason they felt so self-righteous is because they knew the Word of God. They knew words on a scroll. And Jesus is going to say to them, hey, by the way, you know a bunch of words on the scroll, but you don't know the God who gave them to you. You treasure these words on parchment, but you don't treasure the God who gave them to you. And so he's going to ask them to do something, and he's going to point out a section of the Scriptures. Go and learn, Pharisees, those of you who are so proud of your expert knowledge in the law, you need to go and learn. As my, as my friend, Pastor Tommy Rogers, would say, you need to learn you something. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hey, Pharisees, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And why does this matter? Why is this so important? Because the law and the prophets, the whole of the scripture that the Pharisees were so proud of, is full of quotes like this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. The Pharisees were not the people who have been, should have been self-righteous. The Pharisees should have known more than anyone else how unrighteous they were. And so Jesus is going, I didn't come here to call the righteous. I didn't come to call good people. I didn't come to call holy people. I didn't come to call the people who are qualified. I didn't come to call the people who are good enough. I don't come to call the people that have, have gotten their lives back into the black on some version of, of kind of karmic accounting of their lives. It's Jesus saying, I'm only here for the sinners. I'm only here for the broken. I'm only here for the wounded. I'm only here for the unrighteous. I'm only here for those of you who feel disqualified and cut off. I'm only here for those of you who live in silent dread of whether or not God would even like you very much. When Jesus calls Matthew and then goes to hang out at his house, it's God saying, I like you more than you think I do. And I love you more than you could possibly imagine. And so Matthew's on the stand, and we're going, this is crazy, Matthew. You expect us to believe this? Matthew, are you telling us that this is what you believe, Matthew? Are you telling us that this is the doctrine you believe in? And Matthew's going, no, no, hold on. This isn't some statement I believe in. This isn't some declaration of doctrine. This is Matthew saying, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. I was there. 
I'm not telling you someone else's story. I'm not declaring to you words that I read on a page. I lived in terror and fear of what would happen if I ever encountered God. And then I met Jesus. And Jesus invited me to follow him. And I was so afraid, I was so terrified because Jesus has invited me to follow him, so what am I going to do? I'm going to immediately start covering some stuff up. I'm going to immediately start hiding things. He's going to immediately do what I frankly do when people come over to our house, which is I'm going to find five or six different closets to put all of our junk in until they leave. Matthew's saying he invited me to follow him, and next thing I know, we were back at my house with all of my sinner tax collector, good-for-nothing friends. And it turns out that God likes them too. It turns out that Jesus loves them more than I could possibly imagine. It turns out, it turns out that that very group of people who, just like me, lived in terror and fear of what would ever happen if they really encountered God, it turns out that when Jesus showed up to hang out with them, they liked him too. They liked him more than I thought they would. And it turns out that once they learned how much he loves them, they loved him too. It turns out that those sinners and tax collectors hang out at my house. It turns out I wasn't the only one. Jesus had an invitation for them too. So Matthew's on the stand. Matthew's on the stand, not words on a page, not just a gospel account, not just a verse of scripture from our Bible. We're putting Matthew up on the stand, and Matthew is saying, I thought I was disqualified. I knew I was wrong. I knew I was sinful. I thought I was too far gone. I thought there's no way God will ever love me. And I met Jesus. And he said, come on. Matthew, I, just, just leave it all behind. Come on. Follow me. Follow me. 